You are listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders, for that moment in your career when the buck stops with you. This is your window into the world of how to lead successfully. Now, over to your host, James Nagel. Welcome to the latest episode of the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders. I'm your host, James Nagel, and my guest today is Peter Corain. One of his old PNG colleagues put it well when he said, in a world of standardization, this is a man who shakes the status quo. After a successful corporate career as a vice president at PNG and in the C-suite at Imperial Brands, he embarked on a new chapter, establishing Vukastar Consulting in his native Belgium. Peter is not just another consultant, and that shines through from his website, vukastar.com. His values reflect a man who understands that good branding is all about being distinctive. Every word is plain English, no jargon. For example, rather than the generic work-life balance concept, he prefers to talk about the ratio of excitement versus boredom. Peter is a corporate rock and roller, but he is no prima donna. He recognizes that success requires discipline. His definition of a black belt is a white belt who never gave up. Under his alter ego, Paul Numi, he has just launched his first music album, Chimera. And I'll play a clip for you now. The sparkle in my life The sparkle in my life The fire road is my soul But boy, I felt alive And at the end of the podcast, you'll have a chance to win an album so, Peter is my first rock star guest. It's my pleasure to introduce Peter Corden. Hey, thanks for this uh, wonderful introduction. I'm uh, you, People can't see me, but I'm actually blushing. So, I suppose, Peter, I should start with the personal link. Going all the way back to 1993, Peter was in charge of the interviewing process, and you signed my P&G offer letter. So, uh, <laughs> I still thank you for that one. No, I, I made a lot of wrong decisions, obviously, in my career, but uh, this qualifies as a brilliant one, obviously. Although I think <laughs> Record Bankies, their competitor, got more joy out of you than PNG did. But hey, all that was in the future, obviously. Bringing it up to the current day, Peter, you know, we reconnected uh, on LinkedIn where genuinely you've written some, some great articles. And as I said in the introduction, you have a distinctive voice. So when we were talking, we agreed that a great topic for today is how do you successfully drive your vision forward when it goes against conventional wisdom? So as you know, uh, my coaching work is all about increasing your chances of swimming, not sinking. But when I, when I read your stuff, Peter, it strikes me that you used to go against the tide. So can you talk a little bit about how that was and how did it feel? Well, first of all, um, you have to start with a definition of leadership, in my view. Uh, so I, I think that definition can be really short, and uh, it is quite simply leaders make things happen. That was also the dictum of uh, John Pepper, who was CEO of Procter & Gamble. And I believe that you have to leave the business in better shape than when you found it. So, But that very often means you have to change something. 
right? Because it's by now a cliche, but you've heard the definition of insanity, um, which Einstein first formulated, that to do the same thing but to expect different results yeah, is, is madness. Um, uh, so inevitably, when you have a leadership role and you do want to make things happen, yeah, you will at some point be confronted with the need for change. Um, because what? how do we create competitive advantage? There are only two ways to, con- to do that. Uh, the first is to do different things or to do things differently. And regretfully, sometimes that means going against the stream. Now, I'll give you one example. When I was vice president of Gillette, um, we changed the strategy of Gillette. It was very hard because, first of all, it was an acquired company. Uh, Inevitably, the people that were acquired, uh, they were rather defensive when some P&G was going to tell them how to run their business, uh, which I think is a very understandable human reaction. Um, And the second thing is that strategy that they very much believed in had been successful for 20 years. But it just wasn't working anymore. Um, And uh, obviously, to change that, it generated quite a degree of uh, opposition and I would say uh, a degree of unpleasantness, um, um, which is also part of uh, being a leader. I mean, especially once you become a general manager and you move up, people only come to you with issues, right? So otherwise, they prefer not to see you. So you're constantly confronted with challenges where people need your intervention. Um, and, and that means that I, sometimes people say, I want to be a GM. And on occasion I said, I don't think so, because this sort of work is not for you. Um, to cut a long story short, you will need a degree of thick skin if you're going to make a fundamental change. But I think to we must first take another step back, and that is to say, what is a maverick? Because when you will say, oh, I, I think the strategy is wrong, uh, immediately you will get an ad hominem or some, uh, and they differ in different companies. In some companies, you're called immature. Others, oh, you're a rebel. In others, oh, he's a maverick. But what is a maverick? Um, and to do that, I want to tell you a story about the beehive. You know that when bees find flowers, they come back and they do a little dance. Um, just to help the other bees orientate. But in the beehive, there are always bees who don't want to listen. They are maverick bees, and they go in another direction. Now, what is the point? The point is that without mavericks, the beehive would die out. Because what does our good friend Maverick do? She discovers new flowers. And we know that the less food there is, the more the beehive needs mavericks. The more food there is, the less mavericks there are. And so a person who opposes a plan is not somebody who doesn't believe in the company or whatever. It is somebody who has a fundamentally different point of view. Um, and a point of view that we should listen to, I think. You have to look at it at two dimensions. There are, first of all, your own team. I think it's important that you do respect the diversity of the mind of your own team first and foremost. I call it the intellectual democracy. So I I demand that people speak their minds. But there is a condition. You know, they, they 
They can be against anything I say on one condition that they come with a better idea. The second principle is the chain of command. And we can argue all we want, but once we say we will go to the left, we all go to the left. And look, all the points you've made, Peter, are you know make sense to me uh, instinctively, right? I, I, I'm absolutely with you. The question is, there's that paradox between companies want different thinking, but they don't necessarily, as you're indicating, don't always appreciate it. Right, so that's a that's a paradox that you that, that you live in. Well said. So yeah. in your career, who who watched out for you for the individual Peter Coren? I I, w- I was very lucky, and that I also had people who truly championed me as a uh, yeah as a leader. As I was seen as somebody with potential, which was which is nice in those days. Um, you know, th- th- there's a great book on positioning. And one of the questions is, how do you position your career? And the author asked the question, who wins the race? The best jockey or the jockey with the best horse? So find yourself a horse. You need a couple of horses. So, Peter, you've, sa- you've said that you had supporters within the company, people who saw your, your potential and, and supported what you were trying to do. What was their advice for you? Were they, was their advice to stay as, as you were, to move to the convention or to become more radical? How, how did they help you in their advice? You have to practice situational leadership. And this is advice for, especially for people who are now for the first time in the role of a vice president or a general manager. That is that the way you behave as a, let's say, an assistant brand manager or a brand manager is, of course, very different from when you reach higher levels. Uh, for instance, that, that you have to develop what we call stature. You need a higher degree of maturity. You can be less emotional. Uh, you will sometimes have to defend uh, uh, yeah, opinions of the company that are not your own because you're an officer of the company. Um, so what we love in a young person uh, when they are really gung-ho um, well, we tend to like less uh, at a higher level. You wrote the article, which you called a business survival guide for mavericks, outsiders, and square pegs. What was it that motivated you to write that? There must be some very strong incidents in your career which, <laughs> which forced you, because not many people have written that article. Yes, it is true that uh, I, I have... Uh, yeah, fought a fair number of battles. There is a, a prayer in the chapel of West Point. I had a chance I, to, to, to study there uh, on, on, on some topics. And it says, there's one line in there that really st- strikes me, and that is part of my personal values. It says that we should do the harder right versus the easier wrong. Um, and th- that, that is part of my DNA. But yes, I, I've had my fair share of, uh, yeah, of, uh, of going in against the stream, if I'm brutally honest. And, and I just wanted to see I, what, what can people do to become better at it. Building on that, because your title is a business survival guide. Is there a, potential, is there a possibility that people can thrive? So if you're in the corporate environment, can you ever be celebrated? Or as I pick up from you, you're tolerated only. Uh, you will be tolerated 
if you deliver great results. The price to pay is that if you come with controversial opinions and plans that are very different from the norm, you better make sure that they deliver. Um, if not, you will have a very hard time to uh, to continue to thrive in a company. Um, um, this being said, I I do believe you can also be celebrated because there is a way that you can drive change. And that's one of the things that I had to learn um, on how do you actually get there. And the first thing is that uh, you must do a, an analysis of what I call stakeholder management. Like who could who are allies, who are opponents, and who are neutrals. What do they want and what can I do for them to change their mind? You might never change everybody's mind, but at least make that a conscious exercise. Secondly, do you have to fight the fight? Are you the best person to do that? It might be that HR is much better place to do it rather than you. What you also have to do is to put things into a process. And this is maybe the fundamental truth that I've learned too late in my career. And what do I mean by that? To put it very simply, if you are in a board and three times in a row you say, this plan will never work. Actually, next time they would prefer not to invite you. You're a negative person, never believes in anything, doesn't believe in this company, which of course is a completely illogical argument. Because the only right question to ask would be, are you right or wrong in your thesis that the plan is not good enough, right? But in other words, you're now personally very exposed because you are the devil's advocate. Uh, uh, but trust me, it's not a good reputation to have. So what some organizations do right, whether it's special forces, certain governments or organizations, is to put the dissent into a process. Um, so, but you, if you put it into the process, then it's not you who says the annoying things. I'll give you one example. In Israel, when they have to take very difficult decisions like should we go to war or not, they assign what we call the tent man or tent woman. And that tent person must take the opposite point of view from the rest of the group. Let's say that everybody votes yes. That 10 person must say no, not because they are difficult and they don't believe in, in, in what, what can be achieved. No, they're, they're the 10 person. And I'll give you another example, Warren Buffett. CEOs, they get deal fever. Warren Buffett is aware of deal fever. And what he does, he takes two investment banks. One investment bank gets paid if he does the job. The other investment bank gets paid, paid if he doesn't. I love both of those those ideas of moving away from the individual against the machine to use the system on your behalf. I think that's very practical advice that anyone who's in this type of situation can can apply. Now, these days, diversity is one of the buzzwords, right? But it tends to be diversity of you know sexual diversity, racial diversity, etc. But I haven't sensed that mental diversity is encouraged. So in your work, Peter, have you seen companies act on what you're talking about here, which is the 10th man concept 
and and actively celebrating this different thinking because frankly in big companies that's what you need more than anything <laughs> first of all diversity is not a goal in itself diversity is a means to an end why do we have diversity because we want to have more ideas why because we know for instance that the brains of a musician are wired differently from an accountant it's a totally different circuitry as every uh, neurologist will tell you and therefore in different conditions different people will come up with different solutions so that is the goal of diversity so it is ultimately a diversity of the mind and of course since that is hard to um, uh, it, it's it's hard to 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 recruit for that so what we do is yeah we take people from very different backgrounds etc different cultures etc knowing full well that at least uh, that's a proxy for getting to diversity of the mind but as i said it it has to be done via a process because people figure out very quickly where the boundaries are so I always give, and where the company culture is, I always give the example, okay, tomorrow there's an announcement. If you wear pink, your chances to get promoted are double. What's the color of the season? Pink. Everybody will wear pink, and why shouldn't they? I would do it. Now I said the other trick is, uh, is to test. And so give people the right to test their point of view. And Dirk Jager, who was also CEO of Procter & Gamble, he had a very simple saying, you know, spend a little, test a little, learn a lot. Who knows? Maybe they're right. And if they're wrong, they will listen to you. Because you know, people don't always expect to be right, but people expect to get a chance to be heard. With Bart Becht at Rekabin Kieser, that diversity of thought and challenge he was able to um, encourage. He had the mental, um, I suppose, the mental agility and the confidence and the authority that he could encourage all those ideas and yet have that clarity of decision at the end. You know, so it was the famous thing of, you know, um, 70% alignment, but 100%, you know, we're going to make this, we're going to make this happen. So I've seen it myself, but a lot of that rests on, the top person they have to encourage as you say it all comes back to culture actually record bankies i admired them a lot because they they and, and they said that the fact that they had a culture of conflict was one of the reasons of their enduring success and i think conflict is something that is majorly misunderstood conflict of course doesn't mean that we're going to tear each other's heads up, uh, off in in meetings but you have to be um, you have to be comfortable with conflict, with people saying this will never work. Huh? Okay, but what will then work? Huh? And then if you're a leader, you take the decision. Huh? And if you say, fine, I say no, okay, then it's no for the next six months. That's the deal. I'd like to bring you back to your own experience. Was there any support that could have been provided to you that wasn't given? Be that a mentor, coaching, or was it inevitable that you had to work it out yourself? I fundamentally believe that I would have benefited a lot from a, from a great coach. One of the key learnings is first build support before you make the change. Uh, I've talked about the Gillette acquisition. Uh, 
I wanted to make changes uh, very, very fast. That was a fundamental mistake. I should have said, I have a lot to learn. Can I come to Boston, where uh, the Gillette headquarters was, and can I spend four weeks with you just to learn about this great Gillette model? I would have people would first of all have known me, uh, rather than who is this dude? Uh, yeah, because we all have a tendency to trust the people we know. Uh, it, it's just a human insight. Uh, uh, and, and why do we trust them? Because trust is a great economic value. Knowing you, I can imagine. But equally, the person who appointed you to take over Gillette also knew you. So could they not have anticipated that you might have fallen into that trap of, I'm going to change things immediately. I'm not going to do it the slow, the slow, more persuasive way. That's fascinating for me. They, they knew what needed to be done but they didn't give you the support you needed. They knew I would get the job done, yeah, which was for them very important because it cost $57 billion. So the big advice I got was don't screw up. Uh, they knew that I was solid and I would make it happen. And we did yeah, because we doubled profit on Gillette. So. But it is true. It would have been nice if somebody had said, look, Peter, let me give you 10 tips on how I think you should go about it, knowing you. Every strength has a shadow side. Uh, if you're an aggressive achiever, well, maybe you step on some toes occasionally. And it would have been good if people had actually taken the time uh, to, to, to tell me, here is how we would approach it. But that, 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 that is one absolute key learning. If I had done that, I tell you, it would have been so much easier afterwards. We still got very much to where we wanted to be. But that takes time eh? because it takes time for people to feel comfortable with an alternative approach. So, Peter, let's maybe move forward to the current. You know, you haven't rested on your laurels. You've set up your own consulting, so Vukastar, and you're doing the music. Many questions I could ask you, but I suppose the simple one is, what is your ambition now, having had all that experience, all those learnings? What are your ambitions for, for those two uh, portfolios you have? We first of all have to go back to uh, the personal purpose. Um, I, I think having a personal purpose is very important. Um, and mine is to grow in body, mind and spirit to better serve. I think we, with all our experience, we have a duty to share in a way and to serve. I, I teach at universities. Um, I give lectures, I do keynotes, and we also help companies. Um, we call it our, our selling line is uh, yeah, ensuring mission success. And how do we make sure that you get through the, to your mission? And because we said leaders make th things happen at the start, so in the end, yeah, we, we, we need to get the results that we that that we set out. The world, obviously, of uh, a small entrepreneur is <laughs> very different from uh, somebody who's in the C-suite. And that, once again, situational leadership is required. You cannot do in your style, in the way that you manage meetings, what you used to do when you were at the top of the table calling the shots. You are a consultant. So, in other words, you're not the decision maker. And that means a higher degree of humility is required. What you do is that you 
use questions much more than you would do it when you're an executive. Yeah? Uh, first of all, a question is not, uh, I would say, is less loaded. Yeah? It doesn't have a critique in them. You say, would there be other ways to look at this? Have you considered um, the approach that was taken by Unilever or by Racket Bankiser? Uh, so get to a better plan. Um, you teach them about certain concepts because it's also important that people learn a language. And the other thing is that, look, if the CEO decided that green is better than red, even though I personally would have done red, you say, well, okay, let's now make green as uh, successful as we can. Uh, and let me accompany you on, on the green journey. Um, it's it's not your business. Yeah. I think what you've just said about the the reversal of roles from being the decision maker to being the consultant is is really good. But your time is you know your time is limited in terms of all the stuff you want to do. How do you ensure cultural fit with your clients? Because I can understand that you only want to work with the people who are going to get you. To be brutally honest, I, th there is a degree of compromise required. You know pretty fast whether somebody is right for the company or not. And they know too. Huh? So uh, sometimes it's also the client. You see it in the enthusiasm, the facial expressions, because our approach is actually reasonably hard-nosed. And some companies just don't feel comfortable with that. We are part of the team, but we speak our mind. You're brought in yeah, to provide the perspective uh, that sometimes is totally aligned with the company and sometimes it's not aligned with the company. But of course, a consultant can do that. Frankly, this is an interesting insight, James. It's easier as a consultant to come with a, a, a point of view that is very different than when you're in a company. You're not a threat to the existing order. But if you, as a, let's say, or somebody reporting to the CEO, you're a threat or a potential threat with all your different ideas versus the official strategy, which, by the way, we sold to the board and we sold it to the city. And now we, here we have incomes, James, and after two months says that this strategy isn't right. You, you, I, one of the critical things in, 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 is that you're up against vested interests. Um, for a consultant, that lets the case. Yeah, okay, he's not a threat to the vested interest because they can just tell him not to show up anymore the next day. Huh? So in a way, it's a very interesting vehicle to, to, to articulate, let's say, alternative points of view. And how do we do that? We always interview the people, who, uh, typically the people who are in, in either in the C-suite or minus one, as we call it, eh, the, the next generation, we always interview them separately, individually, anonymously. So when we're in the meeting and then the CEO is present, uh, all of a sudden uh, you, you don't hear as many uh, of the controversial ideas, then it's my job to say, well, what about this? Could it, could, have you ever thought about that? Yeah. So I become their voice. And that works because they're protected. They never said anything. 
They didn't say all that stuff. I said it. And I said it because I'm the consultant. And that's what you bloody paid for, aren't you? You find your way to be a square peg eventually, yeah? <laughs> Indirectly, you've got Reasonably, yes, yes. Look, if, if you're a square peg for a round hole, you should also considering moving to another organization. Uh, it is like Warren Buffett once said, people spend so much tr time trying to fix a leaky boat when they should just find themselves another boat. Um, and sometimes if, if the culture isn't for you, there is one out there that will fit you like a glove. So, Peter, as, as we come to the end, you've brought out a music album, Chimera. And I actually have to confess, I had to look up the definition of uh, Chimera. Mm -hmm. I had an idea. So it's a difficult or impossible to reach goal. Could you maybe talk about why you chose that, that album title? And then we'll, we'll move on to the contest. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, Chimera has several... Um, uh, meanings. Uh, one of them is a chimera. What is a chimera? A chimera is a being with the DNA from two or more beings in it. And I always felt that, that I always aspired to this idea of the Renaissance man. I had no issue being an ant person. I think we can be ant executives, ant musicians, ant, ant, ant. Unfortunately, the world much prefers to put you in a box, eh? the artist. The world today pretty much rejects polymorphs, but I've always liked it. So, hence Chimera. And Chimera also means, indeed, as you rightly said, a, a rather difficult goal to achieve. Um, that never daunted me. But it's perhaps also true that uh, since I'm a not-so-young youngster, that uh, to achieve success in music is going to be somewhat daunting. But the album's doing great. So um, we're not giving up the rock dream just yet. Good. So as, as I mentioned in the bio at the start of the podcast, Peter Corain, a.k.a. Paul Numi, has the great album out and he has generously offered the album as a prize. So to win, you need to propose someone who you'd like to hear on the podcast. And you can get back to me either directly or by responding in the comments in LinkedIn. And the best five ideas will get a CD. Peter, a huge thank you for all your contributions there. And I will let Paul Numi play us out. Thanks a lot, Peter. It was my pleasure. All the best, James. Keep on rocking. <laughs> thank you. Hi, Paul Newby here. If you love this song, then you'll love the Chimera album. You've been listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast. Subscribe at swimnotsink.com forward slash podcast.